Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I am joined on the mic today by my co-host, Calvin Pollock. Hello. And Benjamin Williams. Hi, everybody. And today we are excited to bring you another installment in our Rejoinder series, this time with a little bit of a different overarching series uh, of Rejoinders that we want to dive into. Uh, This was something that I made reference to on Twitter uh, a few weeks ago, that we were going to do a series of Rejoinders on a certain genre of uh, popular article that I had started to see more and more of uh, over the last few years, where we see these sort of science journalists who are reporting on uh, researchers from STEM fields, uh, from computer science, uh, from biology, from any other sort of uh, sort of uh, hard science focused field that were taking on these very humanistic uh, questions or hu- questions that would typically be addressed by humanities scholars. And I mean, these first, at least for me, jumped onto my radar because I would see people on academic Twitter, especially in the humanities, uh, kind of jumping all over them whenever they were published, kind of, you know, dunking on them for their various uh, flaws uh, in terms of the ways that they're making their arguments, the kinds of uh, assumptions that they're making about their research questions. But I just thought it was worthy of a little bit more investigation, just because the rhetoric of science and science communication is really always something that's kind of been of interest to the field of rhetoric, as well as, you know, for me personally, I don't know about you guys. But yeah, I don't know. I was always at least a little bit perturbed when I, I saw science folks trying to lay claim to some of the questions that feel a little a little bit more relevant to our disciplines. So before we get into it, I mean, I guess I'll just ask, have you guys seen any other of these kinds of articles out in the wild as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the, the most prominent one, and, and we may get to this one in a later episode in this series, was uh, the article by Jesse Singal about the science of arguments, something called aerosology. It's a kind of <laughs> extremely STEM approach to argumentation. And I mean, We don't need to get into the specifics of that article right now, but what I find fascinating about this style of article is that we tend to talk a lot about interdisciplinarity as a value of, you know, the universe, the modern university and and especially, you know, research universities that we want to be working across disciplines. But I think what's happening here is a kind of disciplinary, interdisciplinary colonization. It's going into another (laughs) discipline and actually disregarding and dehumanizing the work that's actually there in that discipline that you've gone into and just kind of laying claim to the space without really the ethos to do so. And so it's it's almost, instead of interdisciplinary, it's antidisciplinary, I would almost say, because it totally disregards the fundamental values and, and literatures of a humanities discipline. Yeah, I appreciate that critique, Calvin. And I think I would suggest, though, that it in fact espouses the type of interdisciplinary we see in a neoliberal space like the university, right? There's this desire, especially by STEM fields where there's military funding, other nefarious sources of funding in which these humanistic discourses in some ways can be instrumentalized toward an end that is the privatization of knowledge, ultimately. It's it's often not talking in a way that's invested in a commons or thinking about uh, really it's dehumanizing humanistic discourses, like you said, right? So I think that this genre is particularly telling of those trends that we see in, in those academic spaces too. 
Yeah, these are both really, really critical points. I think both because not only, yeah, Calvin, I think your point about the colonization of these knowledge spaces is extremely well taken, but also Ben pointing out that this is, you know, part of the incentive structure of a neoliberal university to sort of stemify everything. And that kind of ends up being what interdisciplinarity means in in a lot of in practice. Contexts. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, how can humanists make their work digital? Uh, not to no no smoke, obviously, to digital humanity folks because there is a lot of good work that's being done there but often that's kind of what these appeals to interdisciplinarity feel like how can humanists make their work feel more like science and then how can scientists just apply their methods to try and provide technical answers to these sort of broader more contingency-based questions that don't often adhere to uh, you know strict data collection and methodological rigor but that require more sort of nuanced and theory building in order to gain a better understanding of the world and so, socio socio historical contextualization yes right the, the the kind of deep rich close reading that you just can't do when you're viewing it entirely through spreadsheets. Now, I should say that my research involves a lot of spreadsheets and corpus analysis, so I have nothing against quantitative approaches. But I do think at a higher level, what offends me about a lot of these articles is that there is a kind of replacement of existing knowledges and and conversations, scholarly conversations, as if you were the first person to come up with the idea of studying arguments, right? And and that's where I find it really problematic. It's not so much a method question as a lack of proper theory building, like you said, Alex. And I think particularly, Calvin, what you mentioned about uh, context, I think is going to be really, really important across all of these articles that we examine, because epistemologically, and just in the way that we conduct the work that we do, these disciplines have very different relationships to how they think about context, what is relevant to be considered within the scope of what you're studying, what is irrelevant and what needs to be sort of bracketed or taken out for the purposes of getting an expedient result, right? I want that to be something that we uh, stay on the lookout for as we continue on in our uh, analyses of these articles. But in that same spirit of things to watch out for as we go along, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the uh, sort of seminal works in the rhetoric of science, which is Jeannie Fonestock's Accommodating Science, The Rhetorical Life of Scientific Facts. This was published in 1986 in, let's see, Written Communication. So Jeannie Fonestock and I have been published in the same journal. I just want to <laughs> make a note that's, of that. Really that's exactly right. Go and check out uh, Calvin's uh, 2021 article in written communication. Quick Calvin, brag what's that there. Title? Just wanted to throw in a brag for a little fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, that's it. Yeah. So Jeannie Fonestock publishing in 1986 in written communication, Accommodating Science, the Rhetorical Life of Scientific Facts, in which she lays out three specific facets of accommodation, which is the process by which popular magazine writers, journalists, and other uh, people who are writing for a more general public audience change and transform the information from scientific reports in order to disseminate scientific knowledge to the public. And these are really, really important transformations that have broad implications for how the public understands a lot of this critical research that's being undertaken. So I just wanted to really quickly point out the three specific facets of accommodation that she mentions in this article as something that we can all be looking out for as we read through uh, some of these pieces. So the first that she mentions is a genre shift. So as she writes here, quote, 
Scientific papers are largely concerned with establishing the validity of the observations they report, associated with the forensic genre of classical rhetoric. Quote, accommodations of scientific reports, on the other hand, are not primarily forensic. With a significant change in rhetorical situation, so the audience uh, and uh, the sort of format in which it's being written, comes a change in genre. And instead of simply reporting facts for a different audience, scientific accommodations are overwhelmingly epideictic. Their main purpose is to celebrate rather than validate. So she's drawing here on the uh, sort of three Aristotelian classical rhetorical genres, or at least two of those three, the forensic genre, which is associated more with discovering the facts of a case, uh, sort of establishing what we know to be true, versus the epideictic genre, which is, uh, as she says, to celebrate rather than validate. This often includes the use of narrative and storytelling, framing these kinds of things as character-driven dramas, where individual characters have these motives that make them interesting to follow along with, and there is a kind of drama in wanting to be emotionally attached to their stories that you really just don't see in scientific papers uh, more often than not. They also make use of things like what she calls the wonder appeal or the deontological appeal, which are attempts to praise or excoriate something by attaching it to a category that has recognized value for an audience, or an application appeal, also known as a teleological uh, appeal, which is a claim that something has value because it leads to further benefits. These are just things that uh, general audiences are more interested in than otherwise scientific audiences would be. Again, you can go back and listen to our episode on genre where we talk a little bit about the ways that different formulaic conventions change in response to the social actions that they are meant to perform. In addition, there are changes in information that we notice uh, between a lot of the uh, scientific reports and the accommodations of them that we see in popular journalism. So changes of information are things like increased degrees of certainty, so they represent claims as being more certain that they are true than they would be uh, in the scientific journals. They're a little bit more hedged in those cases. There may be more inferential extensions. They're making inferences on the basis of what is actually said in the articles. Claims Claims of uniqueness and enhanced exaggerations of the novelty and the sort of newness of the findings. This is feeling very familiar to what Calvin said before about saying, I am the person who discovered the science of argumentation, which again, we just keep alluding to that article. We'll, we'll get there eventually. As well as a greater focus on the sort of effects or results of the study rather than things like raw data, their methodology, and other things like that. And then finally, Fonestock notes that there is a distinct focus on different stasis categories. Shout out again to our uh, one of our previous Reblurb episodes on stasis theory. You can go back and take a listen to that if you want to get a little bit more of a deep dive to that concept. But what she writes is that scientific reports are more focused on basic questions of evidence, so establishing a phenomenon's existence, as well as how we should classify or define it based on certain categories uh, within that. While journalistic reports focus more on the audience's desire to evaluate and focus on the action that presumably follows from that evaluation. So they ask questions such as, why is this happening? Is this good news or bad news? And what should we do about it? Questions that you will rarely find asked of uh, scientific uh, reports in and of themselves. So... These are the things that I would like us to be on the lookout for as we read through some of the articles that we're going to discuss for this. Yeah, and I would just say that, you know, people can probably recognize these from, for example, like articles about whatever the hell is going on with the Large Hadron Collider and, like, <laughs> you know, these, these extremely advanced forms of, like, 
astrophysics and cosmological research where you actually need to use some of these strategies just because the underlying science is so complicated where, you know, to make it appealing to general audiences, you kind of have to do things like think about why is this sort of wondrous, this sort of wonder appeal, or what is the value of this? And also, especially, you see a lot of focusing in on the characters who are involved in the research. So like particular astrophysicists, like making a great discovery of the Higgs boson or whatever major landmark finding that they come to and sort of telling the audience about what that was like, the experience of the discovery more than the underlying science. And I think that's a great example to talk about because, you know, to think about these accommodation strategies, because it's so hard to understand the underlying science. Like without these strategies, you basically couldn't really write about something like the Large Hadron Collider and popular media, but it's such a big investment and so cutting edge in terms of science. People do kind of want to learn something about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think I'm really glad you brought that up, Calvin, because I want to mention before we get into this that we are that this should not be a framework for just for criticizing science journalism. It's more of an observation of what science journalists do to make this information more digestible for a public audience. These are not used in all cases for pernicious effects in actuality, as Calvin is mentioning, many cases they're used to uh, disseminate critical information on things like climate science, for example, to the public, things where there is an exigent need or uh, things like the you know information on uh, COVID-19 and, uh, and the ongoing global pandemic. These are all instances in which accommodation moves need to be made in order for the public to gain a, a greater investment into and willingness to learn more about some of the science behind this. So I think that we are just about ready to get into our first article here. The first article in our series that, uh, that I would like us to take a look at is simply titled The Limits of political debate. So what do we think already just about that title, The Limits of Political Debate? I mean, it's kind of, where do you start? Like, how is this a, <laughs> how is this a single article that like I can scroll to the bottom of and have my hand not get tired, right? Like, that it just seems like an extremely broad topic for the New Yorker to be taking on in a 1500 word article. Yeah, this feels like something that could be like a like a like the title of like a like a Hegel book or something like that. Yeah, or the title of like a six volume series by Jurgen Habermas. You know? Right. <laughs> Maybe he did write a six-volume series on the limits of political debate. Who knows? I, I don't know. And then when I see that, right, I have a desire to, or a hope rather, that it's going to be something perhaps about genre and, and the ways, as we talked about in our conceptual metaphor episode recently, right, the the ways that argument is constructed. Is there a problem with how we argue in political circumstance with another or the way in which we conceptualize of those arguments? I mean, at least... That's what I'm hoping for. I mean, I, I think that those are great suppositions to make on the basis of so broad a title as that. So now I'll introduce the subtitle here as well. IBM taught a machine to debate policy questions. What can it teach us about the limits of rhetorical persuasion? So already we are being promised that a computer is going to teach us about the limits of rhetorical persuasion, which... For somebody who studies rhetoric already, I've got alarm bells going off in my head. Well, Let's... and we can also see kind of a character framing going on here where like the computer, you know, it's like a it's like a coming of age story where the computer is going to teach us so much about ourselves and it's going to be yes. a beautiful thing. 
That's exactly right. This is going to be her, except in real life. All right, so... Him, because it's it's hyper-masculinist uh, <laughs> debate. That's exactly right. All right, so I'm going to get into, uh, dive into this article. This is uh, from The New Yorker magazine, written by Benjamin Wallace Wells and published on April 11th, 2021. Ben, Calvin, feel free to stop me at any points during my reading of this if you want to comment on uh, something that you find particularly interesting here. <clears throat> the article begins. In February 2011, an Israeli computer scientist named Noam Slonim proposed building a machine that would be better than people at something that seems inextricably human, arguing about politics. Slonim, who had done his doctoral work on machine learning, works at an IBM research facility in Tel Aviv, and he had watched with pride a few days before as the company's natural language processing machine, Watson, won Jeopardy! Afterward, IBM sent an email to thousands of researchers across its global network of labs, soliciting ideas for a grand challenge to follow the Jeopardy! project. It occurred to Slonim that they might try to build a machine that could defeat a champion debater. Wait, can I just say, so uh, yes. arguing about politics, I, I think the training data for this should actually be uh, uh, my family's uh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> Uh, because you know, if you really want to argue about politics, you gotta you gotta tussle with those guys. I would gladly uh, make some transcripts of uh, arguments I've had with my dad that that we could use to uh, to train this this horrible machine. See, if it were my family, it would only laud uh, canned cranberry sauce, and I don't think I don't think that's political, right? I, I don't know, you know. No, absolutely, absolutely not. The personal I mean, is political, Ben. <laughs> Is cranberry sauce political? Is stuffing political? These are the questions that, that we need computers to answer for us. Uh, Slonim, he made a single-slide presentation, and then a somewhat more elaborate one, and then a more elaborate one still. And after many rounds competing against many other IBM researchers, Slonim won the chance to build his machine, which he called Project Debater. Recently, Slonim told me that his only wish was that when it was time for the actual debate, Project Debater be given the voice of Scarlett Johansson. Instead, it was given a recognizably robotic voice, less flexible and punctuated than Ceres. A basic principle of robotics is that the machine shouldn't ever trick human beings into thinking that they are interacting with a person at all, let alone one whom Esquire has twice named the sexiest woman alive. So there's already a little bit of uh, of the male gaze sort of pervading this understanding of not just the building of the tool, but, you know, envisioning what this... I really am trying to avoid saying master debater, uh, but <laughs> oh, <geez>. the... <laughs> I mean, you just did. So, I mean, Sorry. we might, it's, it's we out cut there. That. It's, Go ahead. No, no, <laughs> no, we're leaving it in. Everything. But it's fascinating in. that the guy wanted like ScarJo's voice for this and that the article makes a point of saying she was the sexiest woman alive. Okay. Here's how argument should, should go. Right. Well, and also particularly poignant because, you know, the reason that I said, like, this is her, but in real life at the beginning was because, you know, Scarlett Johansson plays the voice of the AI in that movie. And so, yeah, it's just this weird, uh, this weird intersection where, you know, all of a sudden life really is imitating art in a very bizarre and kind of strange way. But yeah, the male gaze comment, I think, is very well taken <laughs> with that. Uh, so moving on. Scientific work inside the biggest corporations can sometimes feel as insulated and speculative as in an academic lab. 
it wasn't hard to imagine that businesses might make use of Sloneem's programming. That is, they might substitute a very persuasive machine for any human who interacts with people. Oh, boy. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like I have to stop on that one. <laughs> I mean, how how just like dramatic and kind of ominous is that line? They might substitute a very persuasive machine for any human who interacts with people in, you know, scientific work in a big corporation. What does that even mean? Like, are they thinking of marketing, like telemarketing? Like what what kind of persuasive work is a human doing for a big corporation that you would want? I feel like that would not go well. Persuasive work in business is very sort of interpersonal and and is about like ethos like this weird scarjo robot is not going to have ethos with the executives in the room i don't understand that at all and and i wonder too has benjamin wallace wells read deleuze and guitari right like isn't isn't everything a machine in the workings of capital the machine of the machine of the machine point. like it, yeah it's just, you know, it's, it's... You should write him an email. <laughs> <laughs> this is our email to Benjamin Wallace well. Just a list of sources. Just, yes. Here's some ideas for stuff to read. Well, you know, it just speaks to that desire that we talked about this, as Alex said, the desire to, to stemify everything in some sense. Like, it's, it's bemoaning a loss of humanity in these spaces, but one must press Wallace Wells on whether or not, like, the humanity is always preserved, right? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, Ben, what I think you're getting at is that really this isn't like a stemification of of all knowledge. It's really just like an instrumentalization of all knowledge. And STEM just happens to be the vehicle through which that instrumentalization is happening because these tend to be things that have relatively rigid methodologies. They rely on sort of, you know, this empiricist method that, you know, again, I, I don't think that any of us are debating that that does produce useful things in the world like vaccines. And, you know, we're not criticizing science proper here, but this sort of instrumentalization of science to sort of colonize all of these knowledge spaces and really contribute to these kind of weird ominous quotes here about substituting the sort of rhetorical labor that people do in for example like customer service jobs where they are you know sitting on phones and you know talking to people about issues that they're having with uh, products or services that's a very sort of bizarre just sort of assumption to throw in and it uh, gets even more bizarre with the line uh, that comes next however Sloneem's Tel Aviv based team was not supposed to think about any of that they were only supposed to win a debate. To Sloneem, that was a lot to ask. IBM had built computers that had beaten human champions at chess and then at trivia, and this had left the impression that AI was close to, quote, human-like intelligence, Sloneem told me. So if you can beat a human at chess and then you can beat them at trivia, uh, you know, beat them at trivial pursuit, uh, you're like, you know, you're like 99% of the way to human intelligence. Just I mean, that's pretty much all I do is um, chess, <laughs> trivia, and debate. Fight with people about politics. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Sloneem considered that a, quote, misleading conception. Sloneem is trim and pale, with a shaved head and glasses. And in place of the usual boosterism about artificial intelligence, he has a slight sheepishness about how new the technology is. To him, the debate project was a half-step out into reality. Debate is like a game, like trivia or chess, in that it has specific rules and structures which can be codified and taught to a machine. But it is also like real life, 
in that the goal is to persuade a human audience to change their minds. And to do that, the machine needed to know something about how they thought about the world. One thing that I would I want to throw in here, too, is that the version of debate that's being discussed here is very specific to, like, performative debate club and, you know, debate competitions where you're evaluated and where usually the audience is polled as to who won the debate. But it's very much about this kind of agonistic, you know, winner-takes-all competitive model of debate. And so when the writer says debate has specific rules and structures which can be codified and taught to a machine. That's based on debate as a genre, as like an institutionalized genre. And if we think about debate more holistically, more abstractly as like debates around key questions for collective existence, then obviously there aren't sort of ready-made structures and rules that we have to follow. This is very much like an extremely specific definition of debate that's being employed here. Right. And I think it also speaks to another presumption that opens up in that first paragraph, but then comes through in considerations of debate in the uh, agonistic form that's being deployed here, which is about politics, right? It has a very limited basis in which politics can be explored. Politics is that thing which is contentious, right? It's, It's considered as something partisan, it's it's not about a genre of collaboration. It's not about a genre of coming together or deciding upon that which is best through those processes, but who can sort of prove victorious in asserting their claim and asserting it aggressively at times and asserting it with a dose of profundity, whatever it requires to move an audience to agree and to go along with that single voice that's speaking, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think, I mean, to his credit, I think that Slonim does understand that this is a sort of like limited context in which this AI is being tested, which is why I th- I feel like he is kind of a little bit more like I, I do have a, a, a bit of a fondness for the, for Slonim, like all throughout this article, because he seems to understand like this is a very constrained environment. This is not a very sort of like real world application. We are basically teaching the computer a game that is a very specific version of arguing about politics that is practiced in like debate societies and things like that, where, yeah, there is supposed to be one clear victor at the end rather than you know the advocacy for a collective goal where we all then have to go forth and live under those new rules together you know as we would in other kinds of public fora but i think that's going to be even more interesting to consider the that alternate context as we move forward here slonim was already well versed in machine learning thanks to his doctoral work when it came to debate his only authority was national Israelis, he pointed out to me, argue voluminously, and he thought that his own family argued even more voluminously than most. So already, yes, he is using a corpus of debates with his dad, just as I would, (laughs) to train this machine. Yes. Excellent. But IBM's vast resources were brought to bear on the project, and, slowly, during a politically tumultuous decade—this is the 2010s, by the way—Project Debater took shape. It was a sort of education— the young machine learned by scanning the electronic library of LexisNexis Academic, composed of news stories and academic journal articles, a vast account of the details of human experience. Sorry, I just want to stop on that point real quick, 
because I think there's a very broad assumption being made about the fact that news stories and academic journal articles constitute a vast account of the details of human experience that like somebody could just gloss over. But like, think about that for a minute. Like, like what kind of a like what actual cross section of the human experience do you think that LexisNexis academic news stories and academic journal articles actually have to say about like quote human experience writ large i mean you get a great sample of the human experience of the ruling class yes there you go so this is machine learning with training data in how to debate within a ruling class overton window if you will yeah absolutely One engine searched for claims, another for evidence, and two more engines characterized and sorted everything that the first two turned up. If Sloneem's team could get the design right, then, in the short amount of time that debaters are given to prepare, the machine could organize a mountain of empirical information. It could win on evidence. Dun dun dun. I just wanted to add one thing about this metaphor of the mountain of evidence and this idea that it could win on evidence. There's kind of a an interesting um, kind of a Gorgian copia model of argumentation and debate that simply having a gargantuan store of facts and evidence and knowledge, you can just dump those and you you will win or you'll have a great shot at winning in part because of the superior processing power to a human debater, right? That you know in a second you can go through your entire data set of LexisNexis and have an incredible set of facts and evidence to draw from. But it's funny that this research was done during the 2010s, because I feel like the 2010s proved beyond any shadow of a doubt for me that like having all of the evidence and having all of the facts does not guarantee anything. In fact, it can be a detriment if the evidence and the facts are depressing or what people don't want to hear. And, you know, persuasion, as Dana Cloud has pointed out in her work, reality bites, like persuasion is about so much more than facts and evidence and logic, right? Precisely. And and think, too, here about the other sort of formulation at work, right? So we see a continued construction of Project Debater as a character. And I just wanted to note that through that metaphor, too, we see just how formidable it purportedly is, right? So I think we through this article of beginning to question the efficacy of the, these efforts or we're wondering as an audience who might be less informed about that, right? Or who might know less about processes of argumentation. Like we think that this, this foe in the debate, this foe in the political game of debate is, is one who is a character constructed as formidable. Yeah. And formidable in that it's, yeah, it has this capacity to generate evidence or just, yeah, come up with all the available facts. And there's going to be a really interesting turn on that specific note uh, that I think leads to the outcome of this debate that we're going to get to very soon. So in 2016, a debate champion was consulting on the project, and he noticed that for all its facility in extracting facts and claims, the machine just wasn't thinking like a debater. Sloney recalled, quote, he told us, for me, debating whether to ban prostitution or whether to ban the sale of alcohol, this is the same debate. I'm going to use the same arguments. I'm just going to massage them a little bit. If you were arguing for banning prostitution or alcohol, you might point to the social corrosion of vice. If you were arguing against, you might warn of a black market. Sloneem realized, 
Sloneem realized that there were a limited number of, quote, types of argumentation, and that these were patterns that the machine would need to learn. How many? Dan Lahav, a computer scientist on the team who had also been a champion debater, estimated that there were between 50 and 70 types of argumentation that could be applied to just about every possible debate question. I'm sorry. I have yeah, to stop. I mean, you can't. I mean, so that what this is what's fascinating to me. And I feel like this comes up a lot when we read articles for Rejoinder that have this sort of positivist fetishization where it often falls apart on its own terms, because that to me is an extremely anti-empirical claim. This idea that ahead of time, we can say there's about 50 to 70 <laughs> kinds of argument. You don't know that every every debate and every question is going to generate its own set of topoi and, and topics. Right. So this idea that there's a precise formula where we can sort of say, across all debates you know it's this number that to me is very anti-empirical because every every situation is different every debate question is different i mean that was literally when i read that thing where he says that he realized that there were limited number of types of argumentation it was like did he read aristotle because that's where you find that out that there is like you know there are means of persuasion that are generated you know from the contingencies surrounding your rhetorical situation that you know that are patterns that may be more or less useful but that you know that are you can't sort of, know it ahead of time yeah exactly exactly so to think that you can just sort of like pre-engineer 50 to 70 types of art, just I, I, the, the, the number too, the fact that they had to give it a specific number to me, like it reminded me of that. Uh, there was that one clip of Joe Biden from back in the Iowa caucuses where he got a question from uh, from a troll audience member who asked him, uh, how many genders are there? And he thought for a second, then he responded, at least three. <laughs> and it was like... The same kind of thing where it's like that is a silly question to be asking in the first place because gender is a social construct. There are, you know, this sort of like inexhaustible list of, you know, different ways that people experience gender. Yeah, And the same thing for types of argumentation. Like these are all contingent. They're all extremely specific and sort of situational. And so to put a number on it just seems like kind of like setting yourself up for failure. Like why not just say that these are situationally contingent? I, you know, this type of presumption too, I think one thing that's threaded throughout is so-and-so was a champion debater. This person was also involved in debate. And having spent time in debate in high school, right, I think like so many of these presumptions relate to so much of what I saw there. Like this idea that winning by a mountain of evidence is possible, uh, that there are X number of types of debate. Are the presumptions underlying that? I mean, uh, there was a tactic that we would often use called spreading, where you speak as quickly as you can in order to get out as much possible evidence so that your opponent cannot possibly disagree with everything that you said. And it was a skill we were taught, right? And you were measured based on the number of words you could speak per minute. So it was, it was about a physiological thing, right, which is machinistic that we were doing that I think is inflecting so much of this research, right? Those presumptions are threaded throughout. So that strategy was just to be as annoying as possible. <laughs> to be yeah, like, like you, you the get person... 100 pieces of evidence out there, and, and they have to discount every one. Otherwise, they lose on technicality. The right? person wow. you least want to talk to about anything. Yeah. 
but but also yeah i mean ben like this is like this is a perfect example of the sort of like human reasoning like tricking and gaming the system by its own rules right like if if by technicality like your opponent has to respond to every single point they can't possibly write it down furiously enough and remember it all like yeah i mean that's a that's a great cheat code for a debate right but uh but we should move on here <laughs> beyond the 50 to 70 types of argumentation for ibm that wasn't so many Sloneem described the second phase of Project Debater's education, which was somewhat handmade. Sloneem's experts wrote their own modular arguments, relying in part on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and other texts. They were trying to train the machine to reason like a human. In February 2019, the machine had its first major public debate, hosted by Intelligence Squared in San Francisco. The opponent was Harish Natarajan, a 31-year-old British economic consultant who, a few years earlier, had been the runner-up in the World University's debating championship. Before they appeared on stage, each contestant was given the topic and assigned a side, then allotted 15 minutes to prepare. Project Debater would argue that preschools should be subsidized by the public and Natarajan that they should not. Project Debater scrolled through LexisNexis, assembling evidence and categorizing it. Natarajan did nothing like that. And then this is in parentheses here. I think this is so funny. When we spoke, he and the author, he recalled that his first thought was to wonder at the topic. Was subsidizing preschools actually controversial in the United States? <laughs> just bleak. Just, Sadly just, it is. Just got our asses. <laughs> Natarajan was kept from seeing Project Debater in action before the test match, but he had been told that it had a database of 400 million documents. Quote, I was like... Oh, good God. So there was nothing I could do in multiple lifetimes to absorb that knowledge, Natarajan told me. Instead, he would concede that Project Debater's information was accurate and challenge its conclusions. Quote, People will say the facts speak for themselves, but in this day and age, that is absolutely not true, Natarajan told me. He was prepared to lay a subtle trap. The machine would be ready to argue yes, expecting Natarajan to argue no. Instead, he would say... Yes, but. Instead, he would say yes and and play improv <laughs> with the machine. I was just going to say what they really should have done is brought in some UCB people to train this machine. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, okay, I need clearly a non-geographic location uh, <laughs> and a set of 50 to 70 arguments. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, that one really got me. UCB debate squad. This is what everyone wants. Combining the two dorkiest things in the world, improv and debate. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, I'm really going to have to pull it together after that one. Oh, that was good. Ben, you're going to have to do some real work to top that one. Yes, but... The machine, a shiny black tower, was placed stage right and spoke in an airy, bleeding voice, one that had been deliberately calibrated to sound neither like a human's nor exactly like a robot's. It began with a scripted joke, kind of like some of our episodes, and then unfurled its argument. For decades, I wish they had told us what the <laughs> scripted joke was. I was oh, kind of bummed by that. We'll, we'll, we'll hear it when we listen to the uh, debate performance ah, in just a okay, moment cool. here. Well, actually, you know what? We can just listen to it right now, honestly, if you, if you guys do want it. to. I'll go Let's ahead and uh, uh, share, the, share the stuff here just so that we can kind of get a sense of what the argument is. I got to like. hear how epic this computer joke is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Greetings, Harish. 
I have heard you hold the world record in debate competition wins against humans, but I suspect you've never debated a machine. Welcome to the future. I will argue that we should subsidize preschools. We are going to talk about financial issues, but not only about them. In the current status quo, we accept that the question of subsidies goes beyond money and touches on social, political, and moral issues. Let me start by examining the main claim from Project Debater. I think Project Debater suggests something very intuitive, that if we believe preschools are good in principle, surely it is worth giving money to subsidize those. For starters, I sometimes listen to opponents and wonder, what do they want? Would they prefer poor people on their doorsteps begging for money? Would they live well with poor people without heating and running water? Giving opportunities to the less fortunate should be a moral obligation of any human being, and it is a key role for the state. To be clear, we should find the funding for preschools and not rely on luck or market forces. This issue is too important to not have a safety net. Next, I think that Harish Natarajan raised the following issue. There are more important things than preschools to spend money on. The state budget is a big one, and there is room in it to subsidize preschools and invest in other fields. Therefore, the idea that there are more important things to spend on is irrelevant because the different subsidies are not mutually exclusive. I believe the following example from a related field will explain what I am trying to say about subsidy policies. Research shows that childcare subsidies to low-income parents enable those parents to enter and remain in the workforce. To be clear, my intention is not to leave a suitcase full of money for everyone to grab at will. We are talking about a limited, targeted, and helpful mechanism, as in this example. It's like a psyop to make socialism sound bad. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe like, that's I'm, why I'm like listening. I'm like listening to this, and I'm like, no, let's not help the less fortunate. Like, fuck this thing. No, but exactly. it's like you know, it just goes <laughs> against my core values. I just, I just hate this thing. Calvin, I think you've really stumbled on the sort of like dark secret of Project Debater is that they yeah. are only, they're going to give it like morally good things to argue in favor of and then just have it get dunked on by like a, some like British economic analyst who is just going to be like, well, actually, it's bad to give and ha- money and to also the poor. Have it, and also have it sound so horrifically post-human and Orwellian that no no one wants to accept its claims. Why? Yeah. yeah. Why? Why is that at the beginning? Like, where is this presumption in artificial intelligence? I thought the Turing test is all about tricking a person into thinking that this machine is human, and now that they don't want to do that. <laughs> I d- yeah. I don't know. I'm not really exactly sure. Again, like what the whole purpose of this experiment was, or like what its applications will be, because like this is all being talked about under the aegis of the IBM, which already IBM, eh, 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 like alarm bells should be going off. They develop a lot of really bad software for uh, military and other sorts of deleterious uh, intelligence services. It's it's all about their sort of grand challenges, right? What are, How are we going to develop the new Watson to be able to beat people at Jeopardy or uh, play someone at chess, beat someone in a debate? Like they say that they're just de- designing all this playful AI to like win games against other people, but like the real question should be like, what is this actually going to be used for when it's brought into the market? 
Also, I got to say, that opening joke was trash. The joke, as far as I understood it, was just, I believe that you have never debated, or that you've debated many, many people, but never a machine. Welcome to the future. <laughs> That's, yeah. There's no punchline there. You're just That's you're literally just kind a, of yeah. being aggressive towards your debate <laughs> opponent. But I mean, yeah, there were people in the audience that chuckled. So it was, uh, but it was almost like it was such a, it was understood that it was taking the generic format of a scripted joke. And I think that's what made, that's what got it any laughs at all was like, oh, haha, the computer is supposed to be telling a joke. I understand that my response is to laugh. And so. <laughs> There's this sort of mechanization of both the speaker and audience that's going on in that instance, which is very, very creepy. I think IBM's next project should be to to develop a robot that can win Last Comic Standing <laughs> that show. And yes. It's like Jeopardy Chess, Last Comic Standing. Hell yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so at least when they turn them into death robots, they'll be funny. That's yeah, exactly funny. right. They'll be They'll doing like five five open mics a night, you know, just working the material out. <laughs> oh my god, we're really getting some good ones out on this episode. <laughs> All right, um, so we've already we've already heard a little bit about some of the things that it said, some examples of uh, of the arguments here. So I'm just going to go on and describe Natarajan's approach here. Natarajan, who stood behind a podium at stage left, wore a gray three-piece suit and spoke in a clipped, confident voice. His decision not to challenge the evidence that Project Debater had assembled had a liberating effect. It allowed him to argue that the machine had taken the wrong approach to the question, drawing attention to the fact that one contestant was a human and the other was not. Quote, there are multiple things which are good for society, he said. That could be, in countries like the United States, increased investment in healthcare, which would also often have returns for education, which Project Debater's sources would probably also note is beneficial. Natarajan had identified the sort of expert-inflected anti-poverty argument that the machine had attempted, and, rather than competing on the facts, he relied on a certain type of argumentation— taking in the tower of electricity a few feet from him with its Darth Vader sheen and identifying it as a dreamy idealist. That's the best reading of Star Wars I've ever heard. That Darth <laughs> Vader is actually a dreaming idealist. Is, is that what I'm taking away here? I think so. Bizarre. Yeah. No, that's, I. yeah, I don't, if, if that was just being made for contrast or what, but <laughs> interesting uh, canon revisionism there. Um, <laughs> I don't believe that might be in Legends. I don't think it's in the, uh, in the, in the regular canon though. So the first time I, the author, watched the San Francisco debate, I thought that Natura Jean had won. He had taken the world that Project Debater described and tipped it on its side, so that the audience wondered whether the computer was looking at things from the right angle, and that seemed to be the decisive maneuver. In the room, the audience voted for the human, too. IBM had beaten Kasparov and beaten the human champions of Jeopardy, but it had come up short against Harish Natarajan. I should uh, also note here that I looked into what the methodology was for determining who had won, and this, I don't know if this is common in debate competitions, but it was based on a differential of audience members who changed their opinions, uh, so it was on the opinion swing one way or another based on pre- and post-surveys uh, of the audience members. And there had been, just just to be clear, there was like 
there were like 70 to 80 percent of people agreed with the proposition that Project Debater had at the very beginning. And by the end of it, about seven, it, there had been a uh, 17 point swing. So 17 percent of the audience moved away from Project Debater's stance to be convinced of the negative. 17 percent of the audience went from affirmative to negative, which constitutes a victory for the human debater. But when I watched the debate a second time, and then a third, I noticed that Natarajan had never really rebutted Project Debater's basic argument that preschool subsidies would pay for themselves and produce safer and more prosperous societies. When he tried to, he could be off the cuff to the point of ridiculousness. At one point, Natarajan argued that preschool could be, quote, actively harmful because it could force a preschooler to recognize that his peers were smarter than he was, which could cause, quote, huge psychological damage. I mean, it just sounds like a horrific argument to make, like, don't put kids in preschool because then they might they might hurt other kids' feelings. You increase the chance of one kid hurting another kid's feelings when you pay for all of those kids to have school. That's right. Well, I, I just wonder, you know, what if the computer had made, what if Project Debater had made an argument about how all the kids deserve participation trophies? That I feel like could have really done a number in its favor here. By the end of my third viewing, it seemed to me that man and machine were not so much competing as demonstrating different ways of arguing. Project Debater was arguing about preschool. Natarajan was doing something at once more abstract and recognizable, because we see it all the time in Washington and on the cable networks in an everyday life. He was making an argument about the nature of debate. Was he? I don't know if he was making that argument. I think you can make that argument based on his performance, but I feel like he was just trying to win the debate. Yeah, that that was a particularly... strange construction. Yeah, that was a particularly strange one as well. So there, there's another part of this article where the author talks to Arthur Applebaum, a professor in political leadership and democratic values, which is a pretty killer descriptive title at Harvard's, oh, Kennedy, yeah. at Harvard's Kennedy School, who basically was saying that, you know, as Applebaum saw it, the particular adversarial format chosen for this debate had the effect of elevating technical questions and obscuring ethical ones. Ding, ding, ding. I like this guy already. The audience had voted Natarajan the winner of of the debate. But, Applebaum asked, what had his argument consisted of? Quote, he rolled out standard objections. It's not going to work in practice, and it would be wasteful, and there will be unintended consequences. If you go through Harish's argument line by line, there's almost no there there, he said. Natarajan's way of defeating the computer at some level had been to take a policy question and strip it of all its meaningful specifics. Quote, it's not his fault, Applebaum said. There was no way that he could match the computer's fact-finding. So instead, he bullshat. I mean, this is basically the classical conflict between Plato and the sophists. Applebaum wanted argumentation more in, in Plato's model of actually engaging the question directly. But Natrajan performed as a sophist. He, he just threw out whatever arguments he could come up with off the top of his head in an effort to, to get the audience on his side. And I mean, you know, I've always been sympathetic to the sophists because I do think that that's how discourse actually functions in the real world. But of course, as Ben pointed to earlier, like all of this is within the bizarre superficial framework of debate, like debate as a genre of discourse, which is a very unique genre. It's incredibly dorky and performative and archly competitive. 
Yeah, I, I think particularly in drawing our attention to the Sophists, and when you said gorgeous earlier, I was so glad that you brought that up because my worry is that the lesson that they're going to take from this, I mean, not this person in the article, but the, the lesson that they will take on the IBM side is to train a machine to argue like a Sophist, to be able to argue any position from any side of a debate without regard to its ethics or, uh, you know, without a consideration for, like, it can use facts pretty much any way it wants, right? Which I think is a much more difficult task, if not an impossible one, perhaps, but at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I, I think that that's almost the goal of a lot of, like, Twitter bots and, and a lot of the sort of, like, in 2016, the Democratic Party used super PAC called Correct the Record that funded a bunch of bots, presumably AI Twitter users, although a lot of them may have been paid trolls, you know. Mm -hmm. But the model for a lot of internet interpersonal persuasion is very sophistic. It's like just throw whatever arguments you can out there to kind of muddy the issue and make people want to disengage from the conversation entirely. So I think we're part of the way there. Although I agree with you that like doing it effectively, what kind of effect it actually has is still an open question. It actually strikes me that right now their strategy of like flooding the zone, I think is actually the technical term for what it's called is just sort of like using right. spam bots to like just inundate somebody's replies or, you know, just like a trending topic hashtag or something like that with just all these like bullshit arguments that are prefabricated and designed to basically like make people not be able to figure out what is real and what's not uh, or to have a skewed representation of like what the popular opinion is it feels actually very similar to the tactic that ben talked about earlier which i mean that literally was was it called flooding ben uh, spreading right spreading spreading, yeah. spreading sorry yeah so this is they're they're bot spreading i think is yes. maybe, uh, that's a, that's a term that we can uh that we can attribute there so i want to i want to get through just the the kind of right at the end here we get some very interesting assumptions about the nature of good debates that i think are worthy of discussion and specifically with reference to things like audience so uh, it talks about some of the other events that IBM staged uh, for the man versus machine debate. But at their current level, uh, they, uh, the author writes, AI technologies operate more like a mirror. They learn from us and tell us something about the limits of what we know and how we think. Sloneem's team had succeeded imperfectly in teaching the machine to mimic the human mode of debate. We, or at least Harish Natarajan, are still better at that. But the machine was far better at the other part, the collection and analysis of evidence, both statistical and observed. I just, I don't know if that's correct <laughs> empirically, just because I don't think, I mean, I think analysis of evidence also involves like how do you deploy it uh, for an audience? And clearly it didn't do that as well as Natarajan, but maybe I'm just, maybe I'm Well, just no, and, and the other thing I want to point out here is that collection and analysis of evidence, both statistical and observed, usually you do that when you have a question to start. And your question, your research question, if it's a good one, should not build in your conclusion ahead of time. But this machine was programmed to have a conclusion ahead of time right. and collect as much evidence as possible in support of that. So I'm not seeing a lot of analysis of data. I'm seeing basically cherry picking, but on a large scale, like on a scale that's beyond human capacity to cherry pick. Right. Like I'm sure it's a valuative judgment based on 
particular platforms, right? It's an algorithm being used to to sweep through these resources and figure out which are the most purportedly compelling or usable or reputable, right? Yeah, and I think that's really what's crucial here, which we're going to get into in just a moment, is what it, what is considered reputable, what is considered authoritative, what is uh, uh, generative of ethos, we might say in rhetorical terms. But this author continues to write here, did subsidized preschool benefit society or not? One of the positions was correct. Project debater was more likely to assemble a strong case for the correct answer, but less likely to persuade a human audience that it was true. What the audience in the hall wanted from Project Debater was for it to be more like a human, more fluid and emotional, more adept at manipulating abstract concepts. But what we need from the AI, if the goal is for a more specific and empirical way of arguing, is for it to be more like a machine, supplying troves of usefully organized information and leaving the bullshit to us. Whether you spend years inside the world of debate, as Slonim's consultants and Natarajan did, or just a few days, as I did recently, the author, you tend to see its patterns everywhere. Turn on CNN and you will quickly find politicians or pundits transforming a specific question into an abstract one. When I reached Slonim on a video call last week, I found that he had grown a salt-and-pepper beard since the San Francisco debate, which made him look older and more reflective. There was a note of idealism that I hadn't heard before. He had been working on using Project Debater's algorithms to analyze which arguments were being made online to oppose COVID-19 vaccination. He hoped, he told me, that they might be used to make political arguments more empirical. Perhaps one day, everyone would have an argument check on their smartphones, much as they have a grammar check, and this would help make arguments that were not only convincing, but true. <laughs> Wait, can we pause for a second? I have yes. a notification. I have a notification from my argument check. Um, <laughs> let me. Hang what's on. what's it's, it? What's it? What's it say? Let's let's hear uh, this. It's saying live. ad hominem, ad hominem uh, <laughs> on my that argument I just made. I've been. I mean, this this whole deconstruction of of Wallace Wells is is an ad hominem, and um, I should revise my argument before submitting it. Yeah, I I would advise you to do the same, Calvin. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just having trouble envisioning what this would look like. Well, I I, I mean, here from a humanistic perspective right is is just getting to the heart of what i think is often nefarious overwhelming and problematic about algorithms right and i think about the ways that one we don't even know the algorithms that are behind lexus nexus in the way that they're being deployed by this right like how is that search deployed what is it coal what does it use i mean that's proprietary information and and here i think Algorithms are those things, in in my opinion, that because they're constructed by people, because artificial intelligence is constructed by people, it maintains a lot of the colonialist agendas, the biases that people have. And I think like if we were to purportedly develop something like this, it's it's going to be an algorithm extending those same biases, right? He he talked about a mirror in which it's being turned back on the person, but I think it's bigger than that, right? It's deeper. I think it's it's a construction of an image that already is a mirror of our own colonialist deficiencies in themselves that's then turned back again, but reflected in a way that's intensified, right? If that makes sense. Beautifully well put. I mean, it's it's in a way that's more directly supposed to like regiment our behavior, right? <laughs> to think more like a good like a good machine should. Um, yeah, like a rational person, whatever that means. Yeah. Right? 
I, I also just to, just to note really quickly, I love the way that they frame this conclusion here about like the necessity for an argument check on smartphones. And just just another line here, you know, Sloneem says it's an interesting question to what extent this technology can be used to enhance the abilities of youngsters to analyze complex topics in a more rational manner, end quote. I found it moving that the part of the technology that held the most transformative potential to make argument more empirical and true was also what made Project Debater seem the most computer-like and alien. Sloneem thought that this was a project for the next generation, one that might outlive the current levels of political polarization. He said ruefully, quote, Our generation is perhaps lost. The lost generation, the lost generation, just lost in, in basically Thanksgiving dinner table arguments. <laughs> we'll never get past them, folks. It's funny that they're framing him as being this kind of like existential character who's grown a salt and pepper beard and is looking wistfully off into the distance yeah, as he says, ah, I, I, I wish that humans could think more like machines. <laughs> it's like the ending of No Country for Old Men. Yes! Like it's... It's extremely weird. Look, there's so much we could say about this. I think in the interest of time, we probably want to end soon. But I just want to say, grammar checks are bad. So don't tell me that based on, you know, we we, we all use grammar check and that's great. So let's have that. <laughs> but for argument, for the rationality of our arguments, like the algorithms underlying most grammar checks are flawed and build in, you know, often racist, hyper bourgeois language ideologies without really interrogating them right so i mean this sounds so orwellian i think that anyone who cares about privacy and especially about the ability of people to kind of organize their own thoughts uh, and express them in in ways that that makes sense to them you don't want to be walking around with an app that tells you how rational your discourse is like as Ben said, that's going to build in colonialist assumptions. But even just at a much more basic level, it's like, don't tread on me. Like, don't send me a notification that I'm using an ad hominem. Like, I can figure <laughs> that out myself or I'll figure it out when my argument doesn't work and I'll revise and I'll, you know, and I'll I'll improve that way. Like, this is this is an incredibly dystopian future that is being imagined at the end of this piece. Right. And I mean, I think that's that really cuts to the heart of what I wanted to talk about at the end here, because, Calvin, I think that exactly what you're saying is kind of speaking to our conceptions of like what rhetorical agency is. Right. And like how we conceptualize yes. our own abilities to make and analyze arguments and think critically about sensory inputs and information and arguments that we receive on a daily basis. I mean, I could bring up the thing about the, you know, the automation paradox was kind of what I was thinking of when you were talking, Calvin, about like, even if it works, we're sort of automating away, you know, to a certain extent, which as Ben already pointed out, it's working in the, in the service of these sort of like colonialist uh, impulses. But it's also automating away our, you know, the need to do that sort of labor mentally ourselves, right? And and what it really is telling for me, I'm just drawing here on 
uh, Carolyn Miller's 2007 article, What Can Automation Tell Us About Agency?, which I think just has these really beautiful lines about how agency is not something that we is like a sort of inherent capacity within people. It is, in fact, an attribution that emerges from interaction. So our capacity to think critically, to make arguments that are, you know, reflective and sensitive to these contingencies, it actually comes from our ability to interact with audiences who will respond directly to us in ways that we are, you know, not able to predict, that are like non-rational, that, you know, require us to think on our feet in ways that are, you know, make us more nimble. She writes here, interaction is necessary for agency because it is what creates the kinetic energy of performance and puts it to rhetorical use. Agency, then, is not only the property of an event, it is the property of a relationship between rhetor and audiences. There are at least two subjects within a rhetorical situation, and it is their interaction, through attributions they make about each other and understand each other to be making, that we constitute as agency. So, she further writes then, For now, many of us are culturally and economically positioned to deny agency to machines for, you know, the particular situation, such as, you know, whether it's assessing a piece of writing or speech or a debate, especially if the machines threaten to substitute for our own agency. Others, like educational administrators, we might add business people <laughs> for various other app developers, are culturally and economically positioned to welcome mechanized agency, to posit an agent function that will position the machine as an adequate reader of placement essays, for example. We might also add uh, adjudicate debates, do fact-checking, or perhaps, you know, be used to litigate the sort of truth claims on Twitter or Facebook, <laughs> or, you know, we could make various extensions of this into other domains. But for now, I think it suffices to say that, like, I mean, I think one of the reasons that this machine lost the debate was because people were not willing to attribute agency to the machine. Like, they saw any emotional argument that it was making as being faulty because it's a machine and it can't feel. Like, that was the sort of overarching assumption in the room that caused its arguments to feel superficial. Like, it didn't have the ethos to be making an emotionally charged argument about, you know, why we should have publicly subsidized preschool. And it was that fact explicitly that I think Natarajan was able to really double down upon, which, to me, more than anything, just says, just kind of, like, proves Carolyn Miller right again, <laughs> that, you know, that automation, what it's really telling us here is that we consider agency as a product of interaction. And as long as we know that there's a computer on the other side of that interaction, it's always going to be a superficial environment. This is not any sort of like way to test out rational argumentation, but really should be the conclusions we should be drawing from this are just about our the actual capacities of the human mind to come up with ways to trick uh, the sort of like rationalistic ways of thinking. I don't know. To me, it gives me a little bit of hope, but I don't know. What did you guys think? Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I presses us on the question at consistently throughout this article. The main one is just what type of work can machines do, right? Can they do the work of humanists? And, and I think resoundingly, no. And where I disagree with Wallace Wells is an attribution of the work of humanists to working in the realm solely of bullshit, right? Like, I think that argumentation is about relation. It's, it's about engaging in the collective energies, capacities, abilities, and working toward and envisioning idealistically in some ways, realistically, materially, 
and all of these different ways, like what, what is possible? And I think that's the beauty of debate and that's the beauty of humanistic work is that we are working within a realm that looks at various contexts, right? We look at material contexts, we think economically, we think there's just so much that a machine cannot do. And I think that turn of phrase where he's asking that or bemoaning human irrationality is that thing which is not machine-like enough is a really, really deeply unnerving one, right? Because it, it, it's the work of humanists, I think, to take the machine out of our lives and whatever that might mean, right? Like, let's let's get back to those relationships. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, the the issue of agency that I find provocative here is to think about the agency of something like Project Debater as a generative and productive hegemonic agency, right? And so this is what disturbs me and concerns me about these kind of technologies and like booster discourses about these technologies is the idea that like, yes, we might not attribute human agency to something like Project Debater when it's speaking, when we're listening to it. And so as a result, we're less likely to accept its arguments. But I think it's very important to be aware of the broader institutional hegemonic agency that it represents. And that is a rhetorical agency as well. It's a, it's a rhetoric of control and rationality, hyper-rationality. We could even say like positivistic fetishization that's designed to collapse all difference and remove rhetorical agency from people. And that's a very bad thing. And I think that's our, our role as humanists is to help educate people about that and keep our critique strong, keep people aware of how it limits our ability to argue and reason together in groups. Beautifully well put closing statements there. Well, I can say I think uh, in this debate, Reverb uh, officially has won. Uh, we're going to check our... Ding, ding. You know, we're going <laughs> to... We've responded to all the uh, to all the points that the authors did made there. So. 50, did we get to 50 I uh, think arguments, I argument calcu- types? I calculated that we were at exactly 65 types of argument that we made in this episode. So, I mean, we're right Perfect. there, split in the middle between the 50 to 70 types that there that there are. Um, you know, even on the high end, I think we're, we're doing pretty good here. <laughs> but that, I think, is all the time that we have for today. That was a really, really fun uh, tour through that article. And I am really, really looking forward to doing future Rejoinder episodes on articles like this in the future. So if you enjoyed this episode, stay tuned. There's more to come. Uh, But in the meantime... Thank you all for listening to Reverb. We hope that you've enjoyed this Rejoinder episode with us today. We wish you all the best. And until next time, we'll talk to you later. Bye, everybody. Bye. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, and Ben Williams, with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producer at large is Sophie Watson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, 
please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.